Hello, I'm Heather Vessant, a futurist fascinated by the way technology is changing our lives. We're increasingly using technology to create our online experiences, whether it's music or news selections, dating prospects or personalized social feed. Artificial intelligence is becoming the backbone technology creating our present and future experiences. Will this improve our lives? Or will we live in a homogenized world where chance, diversity, and serendipity are overridden by algorithms? You are listening to a low-fidelity audio recording of the panel AI and the Suburbanification of the Mind, presented on March 16, 2017 at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, as part of the IEEE Tech for Humanity series. Joining me on the panel are Jay Iorio, Director of Innovation at IEEE Standards, and B.C. Bierman, founder of The Heavy Projects. Need a provocative future-focused speaker? I'm available for keynotes, panels, and corporate events. You can get in touch with me, Heather Vessant, at heathervessant at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy the talk. Welcome, everybody. Um, this is AI and the Suburbanization of the Mind. Um, this session is uh, part of the IEEE's um, uh, 30 Speaker 17th Event Tech for Humanity series. Uh, we've been doing this, uh, I think it's the sixth consecutive year. Uh, um, we've been curating sessions here at South by Southwest. And uh, this session is the last one of, of this year. This is Mark's the end of the series. Um, I hope some of you were able to attend the party last Sunday, the IEEE party at the Driscoll. Uh, see some faces that are familiar. Uh, I hope you had a lot of fun. For those of you who don't know, the IEEE is the oldest and largest global professional organization dedicated to advancing the technology for humanity. Um, and the IEEE is a strategic place for next generation innovators uh, in computing, wearables, uh, engineering, AI, robotics, and uh, healthcare, and a variety of other subjects uh, to, to network, to grow professionally, and uh, to help build the next generation of technology. So, let's get into it. Um, first, let me introduce the panel. Uh, I'm Jay Iorio. I'm the Director of Innovation at the IEEE Standards Association. Uh, next to me is prominent futurist Heather Vessens. Uh, Heather, Heather is an expert in cyber economics and cryptocurrency. Uh, she's published and spoken widely, and her company, The Purple Tornado, has uh, produced a lot of interesting media, including 10 short films and documentaries about the future, and more than 30 podcasts on money, wearable tech, and autonomous vehicles. Welcome, Heather. Thanks, Jay. Um, next to Heather is B.C. Beerman, uh, a.k.a. Heavy, uh, a cutting-edge augmented reality artist and developer, uh, as well as an educational technologist and academic, and also a senior fellow at the Manberg Innovation Lab at USC. Uh, BC has published and spoken widely. He's perhaps best known for creating enormous AR murals that, uh, in several cities around the world. And some of you who've been to the previous South by Southwest uh, might have seen his amazing AR mural at uh, uh, Sixth Street in San Jacinto, which is uh, unfortunately is gone this year, but it lasted for a few years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so thanks, thanks BC for being here. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Heather. Greetings, everybody. Uh, so let me get the ball rolling with some, some general remarks. First, uh, a brief explanation of the title of this panel. One of the things that I'm focused on is looking sort of at the generation ahead, where a lot of technologies that we currently consider are considered discrete technologies are really going to sort of merge into each other, converge, and change the nature of each of the individual components. Uh, it would be mixed reality, uh, artificial intelligence, big data, blockchain, alternative database structures, uh, 5G, fast network, and a variety of other things. We currently see them as separate and they have their own developmental curves, but ultimately these are sort of tributaries to a larger river that will really define the next generation. And as AI becomes the backbone for the way of collecting a lot of information and synthesizing it in real time and delivering to us the illusions in mixed reality that are appropriate for us. The AI is going to take over chunks of our lives that, that have traditionally never been systematized, mechanized, automated. And because of certain natural tendencies, the marketplace, for example, which is, is, is naturally inclined to give people products that they want rather than products that are necessarily good for them but unpleasant. And uh, the uh, uh, 
the natural human desire for comfort uh, could lead to a world in which we create gated communities. We, we started to see it with, uh, in the last year, for example, uh, Facebook, and Twitter, and other social platforms uh, allow us to customize to the extent that sometimes it, it, the illusion is created that the world is more homogeneous than it is, it's more like me than it is, and I think in the long term that can have a corrosive effect on society, on politics, on just the general collective thinking, with a sort of decrease in, in the uh, uh, sympathy and, and uh, for uh, people who, who are, are different, people who are not like us in some way, and especially for creative people in the arts and technology who are by definition breaking the mold and doing things that would, one would have predicted. So using the phrase suburbanization of the mind just would have evoked a gated community where comfort becomes preeminent, the major criterion, and we we, we basically create an echo chamber. We've talked about that. People have talked about the, uh, the filter bubble and so forth. And this is really kind of a, an order of magnitude bigger because with the current media, it's, it's text and graphics, which is still rather abstract. What we're talking about here, a generation from now, is that you and I walk down the streets and we all see different things. Uh, it's a, 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 a world of, of customized illusion. And uh, that, that changes the filter bubble into something much more potentially nefarious, also potentially enormously useful. So that's where the title comes from. That's uh, a lot of what I've been focusing on. Now, Heather, Heather, this isn't going to happen one Monday morning. You know, this is, is, is happening already. We're seeing uh, uh, machine intelligence and all kinds of, of, of online systems and, and services and so forth. Couldn't we say that we're already augmented in a sense? Oh, absolutely. I think that we are all already augmented. If you have one of these things right here, this is a cell phone. It's not even the most recent version of one. Um, it's an augmentation of your identity. It's like a view into another world, another reality. A reality that has apps and websites, and it also has expressions of your identity. And your identity, you know, who owns that identity on here? Is that you? Do you fully own your identity? Um, is it, you know, your identity put together by Facebook or by your Pandora or, um, you know, Snapchat or Instagram? Like, your identity lives in all of these different places. Um, and so I like to think about rather than are we going to be augmented as, like, we have embedded technology, like you know, bio-tattoos or other types of things that we put in our bodies, like that's going to be a physical augmentation. We actually already have that augmentation. This is the device and this device and all kinds of other devices that we use to jack into this alternate reality that the Internet provides. When that's the case, I think about who are we then? In here, in front of you, I am in this physical body. But I also have these representations of my identity online, and those representations, whether it's on Twitter or my writing, or even, you know, like hundreds of years ago when people wrote books, those representations of identity live on beyond my physical body. And now we're at the point of, with technology, to actually create augmented versions of ourselves based on the data that is available ambiently in the world that we create, these data slipstreams as we go through and use these experiences. When we are using these websites, the way product development has been going, it's all about um, surprising and delighting their users, but the companies and the corporations still have an agenda. You know, if you're not paying for a product, then you are the product. And who are you then? I mean, who, who are you on Facebook? Who are you on these other devices? Are, are they slices of you? Who do you want to become? Do you, are you able to fully express your potential within these constrained boundaries? And is it just one fragmented piece and view of you? So I, I used to think in the physical world, you were able to kind of anchor all of these online identities together on, on your meat body. 
But I think actually, like, that's shifted a bit. Like, we do have personalities that do not connect back up to our meat body. And actually, we have agents doing things on our behalf. How many people here use automatic bill pay? Right? Okay, so basically, that's an augmented financial part of yourself that you have programmed to pay these things. But we don't think about that as augmenting ourselves. We think of that as, oh, this is just this new feature my bank gives or my gas company gives so I can automatically pay them on time. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because there's going to be way more ways that things are going to be able to act on your behalf. And right now, as consumers, we don't have choices in that. We're not the ones creating the options for this augmentation. We're giving tools and we're giving these these uh, things that we can play within, but we don't have the choice. It's the companies and the businesses that are making the choices, that are giving us small pieces of choices to make those things. So while it is easier for us in providing these experiences, it's also taking away choice and autonomy and free will. And I think this also has an impact on how we start thinking about ourselves, our minds, and our consciousness in other interactions. Also, I think about algorithms a lot. And, you know, go, call, one day I was calling customer service and I was getting very frustrated going through the phone tree. And then I had a moment of pause and I thought, wait a minute, this phone tree is actually like a human that programmed it. So I'm actually talking to myself, like some other person is talking to, humanity is talking to me through this algorithm. Humanity, algorithms are not separate. Algorithms are not like some technology that's not human. Algorithms are human. Like they have, they're based on human emotions and activities, whether you like something or you don't like something. It's hard for me to sometimes think about as these al algorithms as artificial intelligence because really what it is is more grouped collect the collective unconscious. It's, it's all of our data aggregated together, personalizing it for ourselves creating these comfortable, beautiful experiences, but limiting our views with blinders. And when the algorithms match us, is it creepy or is it convenient? You know, like the Facebook feed, yes, it's great to be able to show you things that you're interested in, but sometimes I want to just see what else is out there. I, I want to take the blinders off. I want to see what it would be without my secure, safe view of the world. And I also, I don't know if you guys have this experience, but sometimes I, I, I actually had a friend post on Facebook not long ago about this direct experience. And have you ever had the uh, thing where you've been putting something in search and it comes up with all these search terms and basically it, it you put in like three search terms and none of the responses have all three of those search terms. So like search is trying to be too smart. It's trying to say, oh, hey, do you really want this? No, I wanted these three things. The search is kind of becoming unusable for me because it's being too smart for me and it's not actually giving me what I want. Maybe I do really want to search on these weird things or this misspelling or this other thing. Maybe I don't want these things autocorrected. Autocorrect, I mean, everyone knows autocorrect is supposed to be personalized based on your own way you use it, but I, you know, I don't know. My autocorrect has this great way of changing things that make no sense and I have never spelled things that way before. So I feel like in some ways this technology is becoming too smart for its own good and we as humans have to adapt how we're using the technology to make it work the way we want it to work again. So I talked a little bit about the um, having the same views of things and I, I think the Facebook feed is a great example or even like the Twitter feed trying to give you your personalized feed but you have to realize everyone has a different view of this. And maybe we want to have, maybe we want to take the blinders off and we want to see what the, what the raw fire hose feed is. And so I'd like to see there be more or more transparency with the algorithms on why are you showing these things? Maybe I want to tweak the algorithm to match what I'm really interested in or I want to add some sense of randomness so that certain types of randomness are showed more. So some examples of how we're in this filter bubble is this online dating. So one of the things that you realize is um, if you do online dating, when before you even meet someone, you already know a lot of information about them from their dating profile. Before you even communicate with them, before you even decide whether you want to communicate or not communicate with them, um, you know a lot of information. 
And um, if you use a site like OkCupid, um, then you're gonna, if you answer like types of questions where you do matching types of things, then um, you're, uh, the algorithm is already saying, okay, this person, these people, these people are like good matches for you based on how you answered these questions. But you know, there's really no verification on whether the questions you answered are actually like true or valid, other than like how much do you know yourself versus how valid your answers are. And then even so, you might like have, you might meet someone that's perfect on paper, but then you meet in person and you're like, oh, it doesn't work out, or you, you know, it's just not that interesting. And so when you have it set up so you already know so much information about someone, you miss the discovery of getting to know someone, like in different contexts and different understandings. For example, if you have a, you know, a lot of, if you become friends with someone and you're able to find out a lot of information about them from their social network before you meet them. It's almost like you have all this information about them and it's not as fun to have this discovery process um, as if you just randomly meet someone at a party and then you're like, oh, you seem cool, and then you don't actually know anything about them. And so the process of meeting them is about discovering things about each other and whether you have things in common or not. So another example I like to show is with the sharing economy. Actually, this is kind of a great example of like a method of breaking out of the, the filter bubble. Because if you're using like um, Airbnb, I'm an Airbnb host and I also use Airbnb a lot. And I have met some of the most amazing people that have come through my, my place or that I've stayed with them through Airbnb. And I think one of the things, the reason that is the case is that when you're selecting your Airbnb or when you're saying you want a Lyft or a, um, another ride-sharing app, you're just, you're just trying to get the ride or you're just trying to get the, the place to stay and you, you make those decisions based on other things. You're not deciding based on the person, you're deciding based on is the place in the location, how does it look, what's the price. And so when you meet this person, that's the host or your driver, you're kind of like, oh, you know, there's there's not much pressure to, to have a, a deep connection. But I've actually had some really deep conversations with my Lyft drivers or um, with my Airbnb hosts. And I think part of this reason this is so wonderful is you realize you can find things in common and have good, deep, emotional conversations with people based on just anyone. You don't have to have them pre-selected. You can go outside. Some of the tools for breaking free. One of the things I like to do is I like to open up, uh, I call it going on internet walkabout, which is um, just kind of, if I'm searching or doing research, just starting to look at one area um, and just, you know, seeing where the links take me and searching on interesting terms that have maybe not necessarily much to do with the initial topic and finding people who are talking about certain things and so really basically like not following the path going off the path going off the path that Google tells me and for each one it's an order of magnitude separated from what Google search results might say so on Pandora I love Pandora and one of the things I, I wanted to have a Pandora station that um, one of the things I loved about Pandora is it plays a lot and I, I wanted to have a Pandora station that played lots of Depeche Mode but if you put Depeche Mode in as the seed, it will play some Depeche Mode, but then it will play more music that is, is supportive of Depeche Mode. So I was like, okay, what artists do I have to hack Pandora with so that it will cause it to play lots of Depeche Mode? Well, that artist is in excess. And so when you're trying, when creatively thinking about, like once you learn how the algorithm works, you can figure out how to hack it to get what you really want. So you can either use that filter bubble to create the, the filter view that you want as opposed to the one the algorithm is providing you. And you can also use it to kind of hack around it. Um, I also recommend um, turning off personalization or using incognito mode um, and interrupting your own habits in the physical world. BC, I'm not even going to set you up, just take off. All right, word. Thank you, Jay and Heather. I always, I always love coming to South by uh, for a number of reasons, um, but the energy is is always consistently good here. I mean, this really is unique among a lot of other related conferences in terms of the diversity of, of participants and the type of life experiences that they bring to the table, and that um, it's not sort of a, a narrow tech view um, in terms of, of uh, the people who are participating, and a lot of it is sort of bleeds into the arts.
which is something that, that I'm very passionate about. My work really sort of sits in the intersection of, of technology and the arts. Um, about 12 years ago, I, I left uh, Amsterdam uh, and I did my, my PhD work uh, in, in humanities. And I think the general consensus at the time was, what, will, what the hell are you going to do with that? Twelve years later, um, this is becoming more and more relevant. Uh, this notion of, of the humanities as it sits within uh, the framework of the arts, which is nothing new. But with the, within technology, it, it's new to the, disc, to the recent discourse, but extremely important. So let me sort of set that up, and then I'll get into how these two things really sort of fit together. This slide in particular is just sort of a, a meta view of this, these, how these things sit together. I did my early work in um, augmented reality, uh, and really that was an academic exercise for me. And in all these cases, it, how I approach this is that I've got an idea that I'm interested in, um, a philosophical concept, and technology sort of sits on top of it, not the other way around. Technology moves extremely quickly. We adopt it very quickly. In some cases, we, we let it go very quickly. The ideas are much more enduring. With regard to AR, then I'll sort of move into how this sits into these converging technologies of AI and, and VR, is that AR allowed us to put private messaging in the public spaces. Public spaces that were generally dominated by very expensive commercial voices. So I looked in particular at graffiti and billboards in Los Angeles, and AR was just a tool for us to put street art, basically for free, for people who couldn't afford it, into very expensive urban locations, especially in Los Angeles, where some of these locations, if you're going to advertise there commercially, are hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. Private people just can't afford that. So this is a way that we found a, 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 an interest, a core interest that we had in the humanities, in, way that, in ways that we're able to use uh, an emerging technology that's set on top of it. Uh, okay, so we're, we're sort of making this case that these technologies are, are siloed artificially in, in, currently. AR, VR, and AI. They're, they're quickly converging. Uh, and it's really important that we have these discussions now because they're, they're, they've yet to sort of disappear into the social fabric. AR we see is sort of sitting as the, the, the data structuring backbone uh, behind both AR uh, and VR. Uh, and just, I'm going to quickly run through three slides uh, on AR, VR, and AI. AI is a, is a way, and, and we're sort of talking about this in very general terms, right? AI is a, is a meta term for machine learning and, and deep learning. Um, but I think for argument's sake, let's just sort of keep it on, on the top level and talk about AI is, is, a, is a way to make large amounts of big data structured. VR is a way to make this structure gamified and beautiful. And AR is, is how to make it, in, in some sense, quote unquote, real, in the sense that uh, these digital assets live in the physical world. Uh, you're able to untether yourself from the machine and get out and move in physical spaces. AR is a, is a longer sort of adoption cycle because of some of the, the technological hurdles, but those will be solved. The form factor on the glasses will become smaller and they'll actually look like pieces of hardware that people would leave the house in. Uh, that day is coming, and anybody who promises you know that when exactly that day is coming is, is I, I, has information that I don't. Okay, so I'm going to spend just a, a few minutes on this concept, and this is something that, that I've been working through recently in, in some of my talks, and I've, I've thrown away a lot of my old material, kind of Jerry Seinfeld style, and have adopted some new material in this sort of feverish city idea realm. Um, and I'm, I'm going to bring us back a little bit and, and jump back to the classics to jump forward back into to modern times. Aristotle talks about this concept, um, excuse me, Plato talks about the concept in the Republic of the fe feverish city. This idea of a city consumed by its con consumption impulses. It's moved beyond this notion of utmost necessity where we only consume generally what we need. So the, the question, sort of this larger, larger ethical question, and really this does get down to a, a, a question of ethics in many ways, right? This is really sort of what we're talking about, is how do we dot these things in ethical ways, not only as individuals, but socially? So in my own work, I deal almost on a daily basis with two competing impulses. 
my work as artistic and how that and my work as a as a commercial enterprise and that tension I deal with on a daily basis and I'm sure I'm not alone in the room on that so we're, we're, we're considering right in a very modern sense should we release and, and how we how do we unleash these technologies into a very consumptive society almost without exception uh, these technologies quickly drift into the river of, of, of the profit motive. And that's not always all bad, okay? But we also need to consider sort of the larger social implications of how we vet, how we standardize, and how we adopt these technologies. That's great, thanks. How do we, um, how do we overcome this, uh, this, this dual force of the, the commercial imperative to give the people what they want and the human desire for comfort in their products? And the feverish city is, is is a good backdrop to that because it, it really sort of exacerbates those those qualities of um, it's it's a, it's a very commercial environment. How do we instill randomness, serendipity, happy accidents? There's no exact word for what I'm looking for, but the kind of randomness that a lot of life depends on, a lot more than we organized people seem you know want to believe is actually happening. Uh, a lot of our a lot of the most important things in our lives happen unplanned, and uh, we wouldn't have planned them, we wouldn't have chosen them. We get inspired by a genre of music that we don't like. We get inspired by uh, a street performer that bothers us, but something sticks with us. Enduring relationships come from missing a train or any other number of things. So how, how, do, we, how, do, we, how do you program that? Right, well, that's, there's the rub. And, and in, some, in some senses, it's counterintuitive, right? A, a programming randomness. There's a, there's a larger philosophical discussions that have been raging for centuries around these notions of determinism and free will and so on and so forth. But on a day-to-day -day basis, yes, right, happy accidents are a, a, a big part of what makes, in some cases, sort of the grind of daily life interesting. Just as a, as a recent anecdote, uh, I don't know if my son, my two-year-old son, is, is the first uh, product of the Tyrell Corporation or is some form of AI that I just didn't know about. Um, but he has this uh, ninja ability to get up on our bathroom counter, steal my deodorant in particular. I don't know why he doesn't steal my wife's. Wait till I'm in the shower. Come in the shower. Make sure we get eye contact. Mind you, he's two. And then drop my deodorant in the toilet. <laughs> so I, I've become an expert in homeopathic deodorant uh, remedies. And just FYI, pro tip. Uh, lemons, if you're in a pinch. Um, without those small bits, you know, th th those uncontrolled experiences in life that I, that I think we, we, we can revel in, we, we further channel ourselves into pre-programmed echo chambers. And, and I don't think we're going to get into the whole fake news thing. I know that's been in vogue, but that's nothing new. Right? This notion of echo chambers, uh, uh, Hannah Arendt at the trial of Eichmann called the, you know, th these things holes of oblivion that people live in. We, we just have the potential uh, to further exacerbate these echo chambers that a lot of these technologies are already sort of channeling us into. And just let me make one last point on, on that notion, and let me push the arts again. You know, just this morning, I saw, I'm not getting political, I'm just talking about a budget cut. Uh, a budget cut uh, that's going to cut deeply into the arts. Well, the arts are, the, are sort of those pieces of friction that challenge us to think about uncomfortable things, right? Um, they reflect back at us, our humanity, in both positive and negative lights, and we can learn from both. We, we tend to gravitate towards those things um, that do sort of lead us into these cushy, comfortable echo chambers. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about Pandora on both those fronts, in the sense that Pandora, the more I input, the more that becomes an acoustic mirror of me. Uh, and quite frankly, I'm tired of me. I, I, just as a humble admission here, I fall short, because really we're talking about means and ends, the ends of happiness. I fall well short of a, being a, a good citizen and human being in terms of, of operating in community. I've let, knowingly, 
many of these technologies isolate me. I can text instead of call, right? Um, I can sit at home or in my studio and work remotely and never see anybody. You know, I've got uh, a partner in New York, uh, one in Oakland, one in London. It's nice that we can have that reach, but also I hardly ever see them. And I've allowed sort of uh, my introverted impulses to be exacerbated by these technologies. Uh, and it becomes sort of a very natural inclination to allow these things, in some cases, sort of blow up the things that maybe you need to be challenged on or I need to be challenged on. Yeah, and actually, like, on that, that end is just because we have the technology to, say, map from home to the gym doesn't mean you have to use it all the time. Turn it off. You know, don't use it. Don't become so reliant on it or, or stay reliant on it. Use a conscious choice of when you're going to use it or not use it or... My favorite way to use the GPS is to use the GPS and then never follow it and choose my own path based on which is the most pleasurable route for me to take. And I think to be able to do that, you have to give up the dream of hyper-productivity and being like as fast as you can and getting there as quickly as possible being mindful about how you use the technology so that it's in benefit for you as opposed to you are enslaved to it is something you can use. Like, like you're saying, pick up the phone rather than text. And for every person, that's different. So it's not like we can prescribe or we should necessarily prescribe or even that companies and businesses should prescribe that, but it would be nice to have a toggle to be able to turn off and on, or something like that. It, you know, it's, it's ironic. Um, Lucy and I were talking about this earlier, that these technologies that um, by design draw us together, and this has been going on for before any of us were born. We saw it with the, uh, they actually have an effect of distancing people. We saw it with the telephone. Um, the telephone on the surface allows you to communicate uh, with everybody, whereas that would required physical movement before that. Yet what it did was create another tier of, of communication, which is not as real as, as, as actually being there. You see it with the car, the automobile. Oh, now I can go see anybody I want to. But then over time, the structure of cities changes so that in effect, people become more isolated from each other, more segregated, and the car becomes more of a burden than, a, than a, an enhancement to, to communication. You see it with digital media. There are now many ways to communicate with people. I mean, we all probably are the same. We have certain friends that we text with, certain friends we talk to, certain friends we see in person. And there's almost no violation of that in a lot of cases. So we have all these new channels of communication, but ironically, we're, we're, we're sort of distanced. The actual real human communication has been, has, has, has so many substitutes that, uh, it's, it's, it's not really doing what we thought it would do. My hope is that with virtual reality, where it becomes actually a, 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 a facsimile of reality, that that tendency of technology might be overcome, that it might be so convincing uh, that, in fact, I'm in Los Angeles right now, which you can't tell, but you would, you would, I would, you know, it would be, um, it, 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 it would be that level of realism and immersion uh, that might sort of get us back to the, the actual human communication of being face-to-face. -face. Who knows? It'll probably be some of, some of one and some of the other. Okay, so, um, look, I, again, full disclosure, I, I'm equal parts fascinated um, by each of these technology stacks. Uh, I work as a developer uh, in all three of them. Um, so I wear dual hats. Uh, I wear a developer hat, but I also sort of wear a, a, a philosopher academic hat, and those hats compete at times, but I think that that, that is something that's healthy. So I've recently kind of taken a step back out of a lot of the, the heavy developer world and have now sort of re-reflecting on what the hell I'm doing. Is what I'm doing consistent with the ideals that I set out with originally, you know, over a decade ago? And in some cases I am, in some cases I'm not. 
Uh, as developers, we get very lost in problem solving, and sometimes we, we, we forget to re-reflect on uh, what are the, the large implications of, of what I'm participating in. That being said, uh, I'm enamored by these technologies uh, and thrilled to work with them, and this is, and I, I won't avoid being cliche, but this is, this is quite a pinnacle time uh, to be alive. It really is. So it's, it's what we do with these things in community that, it, that I think that matters. There are practical, right, real-world steps that, that we can address. Two that I think are at the forefront of, of the public consciousness is algorithmic bias and uh, algorithmic transparency. Uh, human biases can get written into the algorithms, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously. And that's then reflected in the results. Now, AI algorithms are a bit unique in the sense that as a previously hand-coded, deterministic, right, um, procedural coding had sort of a predicted outcome. Uh, but the benefit of AI, in particular computer vision, machine learning, and then neural network deep learning, is that they learn. They change over time. Uh, and I'd like Jay to jump in, in, this, in this well as well, is that once you release them, then they can take on a life of their own. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, okay, these live behind other technology stacks that make them visible, both AR and VR. So we've done a lot of work in this notion of the digital city. Uh, I set out one of, one of the goals with these public space murals was to allow people to sort of immediately input onto public spaces. Uh, maybe people who wouldn't have participated in any other civic system. They just care about the, the crime in, on that street or how clean that street is and so forth. So converting these spaces into sort of this read-write urban context. We're still working on that. Uh, but there's other ways that the city can reflect back to you information that you, we all have, in many ways, freely provided to the system. All of, the, all of our data inputs uh, that we've provided can then be used to re-reflect in public spaces. And, I, and Jay's got some interesting thoughts in terms of signage and other ways that the city can communicate that, that AI has parsed through this data and is now reflecting back at us. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, a, a basically where I mean we see a city now as sort of a uh, an inert collection of buildings and structures, but I think over time it's going, especially with with AR, this is it's going to become almost a persistent ballet. Somebody who knows what you want increasingly learns about what you do through every transaction and behavior and integrates that information, that content that's relevant with the built environment. So you know, biometrics are a part of this. Let's say you have blood sugar issues or something like that. You're hungry. The system knows it, and it knows how to dim signage. If you just leave in the restaurant signage to dim, basically the, the, the entire world becomes sort of a, a customized display that's being updated and smartened uh, with every action that you take. In a way, it becomes an inhabitable robot, sort of a sentient being uh, that, 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 that learns consistently through your life. This isn't just a, you know, a two-week thing. And eventually these judgments become very sophisticated. It recommends things to you that a good friend would, who, who, who knows you very well, rather than a more obvious, well, this is the closest restaurant or something. Uh, any medical issues could, could change the signage on the street, uh, in a way that, uh, it, it creates a custom world. Um, Three of us walk down the street and we see entirely different things. It's a personalized Times Square, almost as though that the computer has exploded and landed on everything uh, and stuck to it. So, uh, ironically, it might be machines writing the code that allow the randomness to occur. It, you know, the quintessentially human randomness and unpredictability and contradictions that we all embody might be better mimicked in software by the machines were running the software. It could also go deeper into the hole, but, but it, it is one possibility. These questions touch very close to the sort of this core human idea of autonomy, right? Are you in control of your life? To what extent are you making free will decisions about your own well-being, your health, you know, where you choose to go, what you choose to buy, and so forth? How much is it already sort of predetermined? Will, will, will that measure of determination become exacerbated 
the further we dig into, a, a, and in some ways, sort of the, the frog in the pot, allowing these things, permitting these things to, to, to govern more and more personal areas of our life. These sorts of discussions, as I said, I think earlier in the panel, are, are, are important to happen now at some of the early stage adoption of these things, because before long, and I don't know how, to, how quickly it, it'll happen, they'll just bleed into the, into the background, right? And then having discussions on these things won't even really be sort of recognized as useful or needed. Um, we've seen this happen with other adopted technologies. So, with that said, I think we'd like to, to open it up unless anybody else up here has any final... I'll just say one, one brilliant thing. remarks. Um, the, um, the IEEE is very interested and committed to engaging with the ethical issues that are involved with uh, all of these technologies and the convergence of the next generation. Um, I and uh, Monique Morrow are co-chairs of, uh, of one of the committees which uh, examines uh, uh, mixed reality and artificial intelligence. And there are many others. We would like to get broad participation. If you're interested in this actually global ethics initiative, you can talk to one of us. You can talk to Jeff Payne. Uh, any of us, basically, and we can point you in a constructive direction. Um, Heather, do you have anything to, to close off? Some points? Uh, no, I'm just I'm here to answer your questions. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure we could talk about philosophy and free will and programming and stuff. I guess I would say, well, I'm a big fan of free will, but I don't think that most of us that think we have it actually do. To have free will is to take a lot of responsibility and have a sense of consciousness and awareness that our brains are really just not set up for. Our brains fill in all kinds of stuff to make it easy to go through things and we create technology to help us to do that even more. And so um, I guess sometimes it makes sense to have a pattern and go down the track. And sometimes it's a little more fun to interrupt that track and go off-road. And I just want us to be able to have the choice to choose to go on the path or to go off-road. And I, I just wanted to pump also the, the, the paper that came out of the group that Jay mentioned, uh, the Ethically Aligned Design paper that's widely or publicly available and super practical. So if, if this is something that you're interested in, is it an artist or developer or a thinker? Uh, technologist, that paper is a great resource. So I wanted to throw that out there. Oh, thanks. Well, thank you, Heather. Thank you, BC. Um, we're ready for some questions if you have them. Yeah, you, uh, you talk about some developmental options for breaking on the developers there. So I'll have algos and locks. What are some techniques that developers can use to fill in? Well, uh, first of all, have diverse teams working on this stuff. And I don't just mean like diverse in gender and race, also like worldviews and beliefs. Some people who have different, speak different languages and can just see things differently. And that maybe have had non-traditional uh, training and education. The, the other thing I would say is don't assume you have all the answers or your view or your perspective or your answer is the right one. We're kind of going beyond right and wrong, especially for personalizing. Personalizing for one person might be considered the right way objectively and personalizing for someone could be the wrong way. So don't assume that you're right or your answer is right. Have diverse teams and um, realize that you're going to screw up and make mistakes. Take responsibility for that, learn, and move on. Um, so we're looking at a way to effectively implement something that, that works with cognitive bias, with the echo chamber. Um, there's a paper put out several years ago by Nick Bostrom on uh, what's called the reversal test and also the double reversal test. We're thinking about ways to we can take existing mechanics uh, in our case, gamify this mechanic to challenge the notion of, of the echo chamber in a way that's sort of 
uh, intuitive. Um, so there are sort of existing mechanics out there that pre-exists this question, and also I think it could be brought to bear in terms of, in our case, gamification, that can allow people to sort of interact with their own echo chambers, cognitive bias, and, and I think make a little bit more transparent both of those concepts in terms of how they might impact us on a daily basis. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one of my favorite subjects. Yeah, so the, the metaphor continues forward with, with how, do we, how do we get people to look behind them and to recognize that there's a puppeteer casting shadows on the wall in front of them that, that they always thought were real, right? So how do we move up the divided line, I guess is the question. Uh, and that's always, I don't think there's a, a foolproof answer to it or a, a, you know, one mechanism. Um, but in terms of my own views of education and how it might be applied to something like we're dealing with now, uh, echo chambers, fake news, how AI how might sit behind it, is that it's, it's best to get people to turn to see it of their own volition, to show rather than to tell. So let me go back to the, the example I just gave was if we can gamify an existing sort of very hardcore academic uh, reversal test type mechanic, that get people just to interact with it in a very intuitive way, that gets them to, to sort of turn their head with regard to the, the notion of cognitive bias, that might be one way to get people to see that there's puppeteers who live, live back behind that. He also did argue that very few people make it past the second part of the line and outside the gate. Um, I, I have a bit more of a hopeful view than that. Um, but yeah, thank you for your question. Well, I mean, maybe I'll talk a little bit about fake news here or news cycle. Like, whether you get the information from a curated human source or a machine source, one piece of data about a topic or one article is not enough. We have to do our own triangulation off of however many perspectives of the same topic. So we've got so much coverage happening and it's coming from all these different perspectives and these different perspectives they have all kinds of different motivations some some are really you know clickbait and some are you know journalistic and some are academic and so trying to figure out what's really going on here requires both there's no technology or software or an app or anything that does kind of sets up that triangulation for you. You can get curated lists and you can see what's popular from humans and see what's popular, you know, within your network and externally and then, you know, have it be split up between, you know, you know, red state versus blue state. But actually I think it's a, it would be a great opportunity for there to be some kind of figuring out the uh, how to triangulate that. Actually, one of the things I also do is I read the comments. I go, to, I go into really deep Reddit holes and I read really horrible comments. And that's one of the ways I get the emotional reaction to things. The trolls, they give great content. I mean, in with different, you know, that's, you get the polar view. And then from those, triangulating those polar views on a couple of different things, you can really, I mean, it's almost like you have to do your own research and analysis if you just want to figure out what's going on with one news story. So I don't know if that answers your question about that. Hmm? 
Well, yeah, but you would think that there would be a sense of integrity among news where you didn't have to go back and look at the academic document and read it or the court document to read it to really understand what's going on because you, you look at the click link, you know, the, the clickbait link is says sensational sugar fat ice cream and then, you know, you get down and you look at the actual release and it's, you know, much more nuanced. It's much more complex. I, I think that's the other thing too is I think we're going through some growing pains right now socially because the world is not black and white, but the way that a lot of these things are presented as black and white, because it's complex to, and it requires a sense of responsibility and knowledge and understanding to realize the world is complex and nuanced. So I, I, don't, I don't know if that answered your question. If I could just add something, the, the, the good education is going to increase skepticism, it's going to uh, increase critical thinking. Uh, you're not going to take things for granted. You might be less susceptible to confirmation bias and so forth. So a lot of it is a very human kind of solution, which I think is what you were suggesting. Um, and I think on the, uh, the earlier question on the part of, of awareness on the part of coders, developers, and so forth, I think awareness of these issues and integrating that awareness into their development is, is, is one initial solution to consider the ethical implications of what they're doing. Um, and the system is not really set up to do that. It's set up to, you have a specific problem, you have a commercial obligation, and you're focused on it. So if there were some mechanism where these considerations could be taken into account, I think that might be, that might be one way to approach it. shows that today you're you're basically half ice cream versus half vegetables or something. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that concept. I like I like that. I don't know anything that does that. Thank you. 
few comments. You have to look at the state of the world that has supported the development of the internet the way it has come, and it's based on our economic model. And what you're talking about and what you want doesn't work very well in the capitalist economy. Well, I mean, one of the other things I study is the future of money, but um, one of the things that is happening right now is our economic systems are evolving. And what you're talking about, many things that are emerging in the world today, they're not going to get legs. And even the internet wouldn't have gotten legs in the early days, in the 90s, if it was required to grow in like today's current economic state, the way that the internet and the economies that we use today. I mean, so, yes, we need to, there needs to have a shift of economic power from an individual capitalistic perspective to one that is looking at more longer term for the benefit of humanity. How does that happen? I think the way that you could use it is like, well, you're in this session with IEEE, not to plug IEEE, but like that's kind of what everyone in this organization and that is affiliated with IEEE is about having the benefit of technology for the technology for the benefit of humanity without necessarily the capitalist success requirements. So I, this is not a serious, I mean, I'm going to plug it, but it's not like I didn't plan it. So I would say find your local IEEE people and connect with them or connect with the, the amazing IEEE people that are here today. And I'm not part of IEEE, actually. <laughs> Honorary. And, and it looks like we have to, we're over time already. Uh, it looks like we have time for maybe one more question. Can I just quickly, hacking, just to throw a concept at you. Um, and I'm, I'm on the revolutionary front. I, I, I love, I love you, what you're thinking. Um, but hacking self-interest. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist. So, it, it, and I failed, admittedly, in, this, my, 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 in some regards in my communal responsibility. And, and I've relegated myself to some ice, very isolating technology sets. But if we can hack self-interest in a sense to get people to, to participate in a, communally through hacking what I think are very long-standing impulses, I think that's a way to, to begin a, a movement in another direction. And capitalism is not the sort of the pinnacle of, of human evolution, right? So thinking a bit longer term, I think is smart. And I'll, I'll move on. Yes. And if you, didn't, if you have questions, and we, we're probably going to have to wrap it up, but we'll be around, so come up and ask us, and we'll do our best to, to keep talking. Quick one. <laughs> Uh, so tries to do that, but anonymous is anonymous, you know, there's no one in charge and everyone's in charge. Anonymous is like duocracy. So it again comes down to the personal morals of those who identify themselves as that operative leader of that whatever anonymous chooses to target. And I mean, you know, anonymous chooses good targets and bad targets. Which is why, you know, which is one of the cool and chaotic things about Anonymous. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you very much for the questions. Thank you so I hope you enjoyed listening to AI and the Suburbanification of the Mind, presented on March 16, 2016, at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Many thanks to my co-panelists, Jay Iorio and B.C. Bierman. Additional thanks to the wonderful folks at IEEE, Lee Durst, Jeff Payne, and many others. 
Very special thanks to Ian Danskin for audio production, Serafina Rodriguez, Ruth Waits, and Epiphany Jordan. Looking for a provocative, future-focused speaker? I'm available for keynotes, panels, and corporate events. Get in touch at heathervescent at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.